The Old Covenant reading for this evening is taken from the book of 1 Kings. 1 Kings chapter 17, beginning at verse 7. We'll be reading through verse 24 this evening. The word of the Lord. And after a while, the brook dried up, because there was no rain in the land. Then the word of the Lord came to him, Arise, go to Zarephath, which belongs to Sidon, and dwell there. Behold, I have commanded a widow there to feed you. So he arose and went to Zarephath. And when he came to the gate of the city, behold, a widow was there gathering sticks. And he called to her and said, Bring me a little water in a vessel that I may drink. And as she was going to bring it, he called to her and said, Bring me a morsel of bread in your hand. And she said, As the Lord your God lives, I have nothing baked, only a handful of flour in a jar and a little oil in a jug, and now I am gathering a couple of sticks that I may go in and prepare it for myself and my son, that we may eat it and die. And Elijah said to her, Do not fear. Go and do as you have said, but first make me a little cake of it, And bring it to me, and afterward make something for yourself and your son. For thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, The jar of flour shall not be spent, and the jug of oil shall not be empty until the day that the Lord sends rain upon the earth. And she went and did as Elijah said. And she and he and her household ate for many days. The jar of flour was not spent, neither did the jug of oil become empty, according to the word of the Lord that he spoke by Elijah. After this, the son of the woman, the mistress of the house, became ill, and his illness was so severe that there was no breath left in him. And she said to Elijah, What have you against me, O man of God? You have come to... Bring my sin to remembrance and to cause the death of my son? And he said to her, Give me your son. And he took him from her arms and carried him up into the upper chamber where he lodged and laid him on his own bed. And he cried to the Lord, O Lord my God, have you brought calamity even upon the widow with whom I sojourn by killing her son? Then he stretched himself upon the child three times and cried to the Lord, O Lord my God, let this child's life come into him again. And the Lord listened to the voice of Elijah, and the life of the child came into him again, and he revived. And Elijah took the child and brought him down from the upper chamber into the house and delivered him to his mother. And Elijah said, See, Your son lives. And the woman said to Elijah, Now I know that you are a man of God, and that the word of the Lord in your mouth is truth. Here endeth the Old Covenant reading. The New Covenant reading is taken from the Gospel according to Luke. Luke chapter 4, beginning at verse 16, we'll be reading through verse 30 this evening. The word of our God. And he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, 
He went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. And they said, Is not this Joseph's son? And he said to them, Doubtless you will quote to me this proverb, Physician, heal yourself. What we have heard you did at Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. And he said, Truly I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. But in truth I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah, when the heavens were shut up three years and six months, and a great famine came over all the land, and Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon, to a woman who was a widow. And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha, and none of them was cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian. When they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath, and they rose up and drove him out of the town and brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built, so that they could throw him down the cliff, but passing through their midst, he went away. Here endeth the New Covenant reading. Please turn once again with me back to 1 Kings chapter 17, beginning at verse 7, as this will be the primary portion of God's word for our evening sermon. Trust and obey, for there is no other way to be happy in Jesus but to trust and obey. In spite of their apparent simplicity, uh, those lyrics are worthy of prolonged meditation. Uh, I've heard people, Christians, including some Reformed Christians, object to these lyrics because they believe that these words put too great of an emphasis on obedience. Indeed, sometimes evangelicals, including Reformed evangelicals, treat the word obedience almost as though it were a dirty word. But that is to confuse obedience with merit. God's word categorically condemns any attempt by fallen human beings to achieve merit before God on the basis of our own works. And that makes good sense. After all, God requires perfect, personal, and perpetual obedience. And even if we could do that, and we don't, all we would be able to say is, Lord, all I have done is what is required of me. So any attempt to achieve merit before God is clearly condemned in God's word. On the other hand, the Bible speaks pervasively about both our need to seek to be faithful in our lives before God and that the Lord is very pleased when we do so. 
And I actually think among Reformed Christians, it's that latter one that we have difficulty with. The Lord is pleased when you seek to live faithfully before God by trusting him and walking in accordance with his word. Now, naturally, all of our obedience is by his grace and in his power. Yet since the Lord does give us his grace and power, obedience is intended to be an ordinary aspect of every believer's life. The Apostle Paul puts it like this in Romans chapter 8. For God has done what the law weakened by flesh could not do. By sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemns sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. God, having fulfilled the righteous requirement of the law for us, moves to fulfilling the righteous requirement of the law in us when we walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. As a theologian, my only concern with singing trust and obey is that we might misunderstand the word end. See, see, that conjunction doesn't mean that you can have one without the other, that you can have trust without obedience. Because genuine faith always, always results in obedience. According to God's word, it is not possible to obey except by trusting the Lord. And it is not possible to trust the Lord without this changing the way that we live. Genuine faith always results in obedience. Now, such obedience, of course, isn't perfect. But that's because the faith that it flows from isn't perfect either. But both are genuine. This obedience which flows from faith is both genuine and pleasing to God. As I heard one New Testament scholar put it, Obedience is simply faith going public. I want to say that again because I think that's a helpful way to think about the connection between faith and obedience. Obedience is simply faith going public. That is, what we call obedience is simply what your life looks like when you're trusting God, trusting Christ for that aspect of your life. And so as you trust God for all the aspects of your life, what your life now looks like is obedience. Or you might say faithfulness. Faith always results in faithfulness. Tonight's passage is about faithfulness. It is about the faithfulness of God's prophet. It is about the growing faith and faithfulness of this widow, who's a Gentile. And it is about the faithfulness of the Lord. However, if we use those three as an organizing structure for the sermon, uh, we're going to be in trouble because they don't just follow sequentially. Rather, the faithfulness of Elijah, the faithfulness of the widow, and the faithfulness of the Lord in this passage are all deeply intertwined. And so for the sake of being able to listen more closely to the sermon, I'm going to discuss this passage under five headings, all related to the Lord's faithfulness. But as I do so, I'm going to talk about Elijah's faithfulness and the widow's faithfulness as well. Uh, For those of you taking notes, and even if you're not, The five headings for this evening are these. First, the Lord is faithful to his word of judgment. Second, the Lord is faithful to provide for his servants. Third, our faithful Lord challenges us to trust him. Fourth, 
the Lord is faithful to his word of blessing. And fifth, because the Lord is faithful, his word is truth. Let me give those to you once again. First, the Lord is faithful to his word of judgment. Second, the Lord is faithful to provide for his servants. Third, our faithful Lord challenges us to trust him. Fourth, the Lord is faithful to his word of blessing. And fifth, because the Lord is faithful, his word is truth. We begin this evening with the Lord being faithful to his word of judgment. Look at verse 7 with me. And after a while, the brook dried up because there was no rain in the land. Uh, Try to go back and put yourself in Elijah's shoes. Can you imagine that? What it must have been like for the prophet to stand before the king, the powerful king in his whole court, and declare God's judgment upon the king and upon the people. Elijah said, As the Lord, the God of Israel, lives, before whom I stand, there shall be neither dew nor rain these three years, except by my word. Elijah is staking everything upon the word of God. You know, if it rains, apart from Elijah's word, he's going to be shown to be a false prophet, and he is as good as dead. Yet the Lord is faithful to his word of judgment. Uh, The brook drying up is direct evidence that God has in fact sent an unrelenting drought upon the land of Israel and even beyond. As Elijah drank from the wadi Cherith, with the ravens bringing him breakfast and dinner every day, he must have been greatly strengthened in his faith, even as he contemplated the terrible judgment that the Lord was bringing upon the northern tribes of Israel. Now the very provision that God had made for him, that he would have drink out of the brook Cherith, that too is dried up, but it is dried up in accordance with the word of his God. I think one of the striking deficiencies in modern North America is that we don't take seriously the fact that the Lord is true to his word of judgment. Let me um, try to demonstrate this fact for you. I'm simply going to quote a passage. And you just ask yourself, do American Christians and American churches believe and teach what Paul is saying? This is from uh, Paul's first letter to the church in Corinth. Paul writes, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Now think carefully about those words. Is it not the case that American Christianity is filled with both Christians who believe and churches who at least implicitly teach that you can have all your guilt washed away and still live the way you did when you were lost? But Paul says... Do not be deceived. That is not true. God's word clearly teaches that new faith always leads to a newfound obedience. 
always. And those who continue to wallow in their former sins are making clear that they are not, in fact, children of the living God. Uh, I find it particularly tragic that many Christians seem reluctant to warn other professing Christians of this fact, lest they be considered judgmental. The astonishing long-suffering of the Lord can tempt us to believe that judgment will never come. Yet as Peter says in his second epistle, the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. God is faithful to his word of judgment. Elijah knew this experientially. He had proclaimed God's word. Neither the king nor the people repented, and so the terrible and inescapable judgment had begun to fall. But thankfully, the Lord is also faithful to provide for his servants. Look at verse 8 with me. Then the word of the Lord came to him, Arise, go to Zarephath, which belongs to Sidon, and dwell there. Behold, I have commanded a widow there to feed you. Now, the Lord had been miraculously feeding Elijah for around four or five months, bringing him breakfast and lunch through carrier ravens, as it were. Now that the wadi Cherith has dried up, the Lord commands a Gentile widow to provide for his faithful prophet in Sidon. I wonder if the name Sidon rings any bells for you. But Jezebel was a Sidonian. Sidon um, is a fairly large territory, but the, the um, city of Zarephath is a city on the Phoenician seacoast in the territory of Sidon. It's about 14 miles north of Tyre, about 50 miles north of Mount Carmel. This is the very heart of where Baal was supposed to reign. This is the place where Baal worship came from as it enters into Israel with Jezebel. Yet as Jezebel has brought Baal worship to Israel, the Lord was now using Elijah to bring Yahweh worship to one very particular widow whom he has chosen. It's also worth noting that after a few months of complete drought, Ahab and Jezebel would have been on the lookout to find Elijah and to kill him. So not only was the Lord providing for Elijah through this Gentile widow, he was also providing protection from him for him, even as he denied the people of Israel a fresh word from himself through this man of God. How would Elijah respond? Verse 10. So he arose and went to Zarephath. That's so simple, we just skip right over it, but it's actually very important. Uh, verse 5, which we looked at last week, begins, So he went and did according to the word of the Lord. Now in verse 10, once again, Elijah has the word of the Lord, and he does it. That is what trusting the Lord looks like. It doesn't need to be flashy or dramatic. 
If we trust the Lord, we will take him at his, at his word, and therefore, we will do it. Uh, that's simple, but it's certainly not easy. Look at verses 10 and 11 with me. Verses 10 and 11. So Elijah arose, and he went to Zarephath. And when he came to the gate of the city, behold, a widow was there gathering sticks. And he called to her and said, Bring me a little water in a vessel that I may drink. And as she was going to bring it, he called to her and said, Bring me a morsel of bread in your hand. Now, now before we consider this poor widow, whose life is really miserable right now, we ought to pause for a moment and think about Baal. Uh, This false god was supposed to be the Canaanite god who sends rain. But even on his home turf, the judgment of the true and living God, the God of Israel, is having a devastating effect. The foundations upon which this widow's religious practices was being cast into serious doubt, shaken to the core, as it were. Suddenly this prophet, she has never seen before, but somehow the Lord has made her aware of, asks her for a cup of water, and in spite of her misery, she heads off to get it for him. Reminded of our Lord's words from the end of Matthew chapter 10, which we looked at just last week, Jesus says, the one who receives a prophet because he is a prophet will receive a prophet's reward. And the one who receives a righteous person because he is a righteous person will receive a righteous person's reward. And whoever gives one of these little ones even a cup of cold water because he is a disciple, truly I say to you, he will by no means lose his reward. Now as this widow heads off to get Elijah a cup of water, as it were, Elijah says something that breaks this woman's spirit. Elijah calls after this woman and asks for her to also bring him a piece of bread. And she just breaks down. As the Lord your God lives, I have nothing baked, only a handful of flour in a jar and a little oil in a jug. And now I am gathering a couple of sticks that I may go in and prepare it for myself and my son that we may eat it and die. Wow. See, the widow isn't being stingy. She balks at the request for bread for a very practical reason. She doesn't have any. To point out the obvious, this widow is presented as a most inadequate source of support for Elijah. See, it isn't the widow that's going to take care of Elijah. It's the Lord who's going to take care of Elijah through this Gentile widow. After this widow gathers a couple of sticks, the apparently inevitable course of her fate is predicted in a brusque chain of verbs. I will go. I will prepare. We will eat. Then we will die. And yet we should not imagine that God was not already at work In some way that we are never told, the Lord had made clear to this widow that he was bringing his prophet to her. Keep in mind that this widow was a polytheist. It's not as though she denied the existence of Yahweh. 
This Yahweh wasn't her God. It wasn't her nation's God. Uh, Yahweh was in some way the God of Israel in general and of Elijah in particular. She, on the other hand, was a worshiper of Baal. Nevertheless, it seems like Baal was falling down on the job. Baal's job was to send rain and to give fertility to the crops. Yet even on his home turf in Sidon, Baal was beginning to look rather impotent. See, the Lord was not only using the dreadful judgment of a drought to chastise Israel, he was also orchestrating events to pull this widow away from worshiping Baal to recognizing that he and he alone is the creator of heaven and earth. Uh, This is a severe providence, but it is one that will ultimately lead to her everlasting good. Put simply, our faithful Lord challenges us to trust him, and he's beginning to challenge this widow to do that very thing. Yet Elijah responds by telling the widow to not be afraid. Despite what the woman told him about the last provisions in her house, Elijah directs her to make some bread for him anyway. Look at verses 13 and 14 with me. Verses 13 and 14. And Elijah said to her, Do not fear. Go and do as you have said. But first, make me a little cake of it and bring it to me. And afterward, make something for yourself and for your son. For thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, The jar of flour shall not be spent, and the jug of oil shall not be empty, until the day that the Lord sends rain upon the earth. This desperate woman had just told Elijah that she is about to watch her only son die of starvation. And Elijah not only asks for food, he tells her that she is to feed him first before she feeds herself and before she feeds her son. What a demanding test of faith. This demanding question from Elijah is matched with our Lord's promise. For thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, the jar of flour shall not be spent and the jug of oil shall not be empty until the day that the Lord sends rain upon the earth. Whether or not this woman is afraid is going to depend on one thing. Is she going to focus on her lack of provision or is she going to focus on the word of the Lord through the prophet Elijah? What would you do if you were in her shoes? Verse 15, and she went and did as Elijah said. Now, there's no way to know whether or not the widow acted in faith or, frankly, in despair. Perhaps it's a little bit of both. But at least she did what the Lord, through his prophet, was telling her to do. And that is what faith, even the most faltering faith, always does. Trusting the word of the Lord changes the choices that we make. Genuine faith leads us to increasingly do what the word of the Lord tells us. What happens when the widow acts upon God's word? Uh, Richard Nelson gives us the answer, and I think what is a really beautiful turn of phrase. As Elijah's word is done by the widow, so God's word is done for her and through her. And she and he and her household ate for many days. 
The jar of flour was not spent, neither did the jug of oil become empty, according to the word of the Lord that he spoke by Elijah. Now, this pattern of testing and provision is actually one that the Lord uses in all of our lives to challenge us to faith and to cause our faith to grow. It is often only when we come to the end of our own ability to meet our own needs, to solve our own problems, that we begin to see that the Lord is our good shepherd most clearly in our lives. The Lord who stretches us is also faithful to his word of blessing. But here's what makes this so difficult. God doesn't do this in our lives just once, right? It would be so much easier for us if you had one trial and you trusted the Lord and then he provided for you and then for the rest of your life, your faith grew out of that one trial. But that's just not how faith really grows. Um, Growing faith is much more like weightlifting. When you first start, you might have some light weights and quickly get worn out. But if you keep at it, it becomes easy. And you will not keep growing in terms of your muscles and your strength if you keep using those really light weights and just do a few reps. You have to increase the weights. And that's what God does in our life as well. He increases the the weights, as it were, the, the degree of the stress that we're going to feel precisely so that we'll grow to see that, yes, we can trust God with that as well. In the case of this widow, she got a crash course in this truth. It is just staggering the way that God tested her faith next. We're told that after this, the son of the woman, the mistress of the house, became ill, and his illness was so severe that there was no breath left in him. And she said to Elijah, What have you against me, O man of God? You have come to bring my sin to remembrance and to cause the death of my son. Now, a number of commentators have pointed out that it talks about the breath going out of him, but never actually says that he dies. There's actually a little bit of a debate in the scholarly circles. Did he, did he die and need to be raised from the dead, or did he simply need to be resurrected? I think the, the, um, the clear implication is this child dies. So why doesn't the Lord say that? Uh, Walter Meyer, a particularly fine commentator, suggests this. Perhaps this is because the account contains eyewitness details. One could assume that the boy, due to his illness, had labored breathing, which became more and more difficult until finally this stopped and there was no breath left in him. Now, if Professor Meyer is correct, and I think he is, What this means, this widow who thought she was going to watch her son starve to death, watched him become ill, watched his health decline, held this child in her arms until the breath went out of him. It's a jarring tragedy for her to experience. What's striking to me is that this woman does not blame the prophet. She actually focuses much of the blame upon herself. You have come to me to bring my sin to remembrance and to cause the death of my son. Yes, Elijah's presence made the difference, but the ground of her son dying, this woman is imagining, was her own prior history of sin. Apparently, this widow thought that the presence of the prophet in her house has drawn God's attention to her 
So if the Lord was now focusing upon her history of sin, uh, this actually shows a significant growth in this widow's understanding of who Yahweh is and what he is like. But he is a holy God. See, Baal worshipers, like pagans in general, don't even think about sin. Their gods do not require ethical behavior. That that's distinct to Yahweh, the God of Israel. Now, you won't be particularly familiar with the, uh, we'll call them mythologies, but they actually believe them, the so-called gods of the ancient Near East. But almost all of you are going to be familiar with the Greek and Roman myths. All you have to do is think for a moment about the nature of the gods, the, like Zeus and the, 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 the gods up on Olympus and how they behaved, and you'll realize for a moment, not only did they not require ethical behavior, they didn't engage in it themselves. The Greek gods actually are sort of immorality writ large. That's the way pagans thought. But this widow, who's been sustained by Yahweh through his prophet, is, has come to understand more and more about God's character. But he is a holy God, that he judges sin. And so when her son dies, she looks back on her own life and realizes, well, I've been a pagan, and it's caught up to me. And God has brought judgment on me by taking the life of my son. She couldn't possibly know that the Lord was using this tragedy both for her own good and so that Yahweh might be glorified. Um, you'll notice that Elijah seems startled by the death of this boy. He wasn't expecting it. God hadn't told him this was going to happen in advance. Yet out of pity and love, he leaps into action. Uh, look at verses 19 and 20 with me. And Elijah said to her, Give me your son. And he took him from her arms and carried him up into the upper chamber where he lodged. And he laid him on his own bed, and he cried to the Lord, O Lord my God, have you brought calamity even upon the widow with whom I sojourn by killing her son? Uh, interestingly, at least to me, when Elijah says, give me your son, we're not told that she does that. Rather, we're told that he takes her from her arms. I, I think she was not willing to let her son go, and Elijah has to gently pull this child out of this grieving widow's arms, and then he takes this son with him. The fact that Elijah's room was upstairs actually makes two things clear. Uh, first, this widow had at one time been a, widow, a woman of some financial means. It was very uncommon for houses in that day to be built with two stories. And so we should realize that this wealthy pagan woman now a believer, had actually had her entire financial estate destroyed. You can imagine what it was like for the poor people in the land. But second, it would have also made clear, in case anyone wanted to criticize Elijah for living with an unmarried Gentile woman, that he was living in his own quarters with a respectable degree of privacy. As Walter Meyer points out, the prophet is led to wrestle with the Lord in prayer, but he didn't have an advance warning about this. Elijah is asking God in very bold language, Yahweh my God, which by the way reflects his name. Elijah's name means my God is Yahweh, and you keep hearing this Yahweh my God through this passage, that that's gotten right to the core of who Elijah is. Yahweh my God, 
Even on the widow with whom I have been sojourning, have you brought calamity to kill her son? The bitterness of the moment forces Elijah to grasp with fiercer tenacity the encouragements and the promises of Scripture that believers can pour their hearts out to the Lord, approach him with confidence, bring any petition to him, and rely fully upon God's grace, mercy, and love. Elijah's faith is drawn to such a point that the prophet asked God to perform a miracle that has never been performed before on the face of the earth. This is the very first time that God is going to do this, at least as it's recorded in Scripture. He calls upon the Lord to take a dead child and bring him back to life. Verses 21 and 22. Then Elijah stretched himself upon the child three times, and he cried to the Lord, O Lord my God, let this child's life come into him again. And the Lord listened to the voice of Elijah, and the life of the child came into him again, and he revived. There is tremendous hope in those words. Yahweh and not Baal. Yahweh and not any other gods in this world is the Lord of life. And that actually says something about Israel that's being condemned right now. If the Lord to Elijah could raise this child back to life, then the Lord through Elijah with his word could raise Israel back to spiritual life as well. Naturally enough, our hope is not that our deceased loved ones will all miraculously be restored to this present life in a fallen world. Our hope is far better than that. Our confident hope is that we, along with all of God's people, will one day be raised to life incorruptible, to live and to reign with him forever. Verses 23 and 24. And Elijah took the child and brought him down from the upper chamber into the house and delivered him to his mother. And Elijah says, See, your son lives. And the woman said to Elijah, now I know that you are a man of God, and the word of the Lord in your mouth is truth. See, the Lord is faithful to his word of blessing. And because the Lord is faithful to his word, his word is truth. What lessons should we draw from this portion of God's word? Three short things. First, from our New Covenant reading this evening, we are reminded that the Lord is entirely free to have mercy upon whomever he wills. As Jesus puts it, But in truth I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah, when the heavens were shut up three years and six months, and a great famine came over all the land, and Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath, in the land of Sidon, to a woman who was a widow. See, the fact that Israel is re rejecting the God of grace did not mean that the Lord would be without a people. The Lord would go to the most surprising place, to the very heart of Baal worship, and he would call a pagan widow unto himself. God is capable of raising up, even from stones, those who will worship Jesus Christ.
Second, the raising of this widow's son demonstrates that Yahweh is the God of life and death. And though Israel gave every sign of being spiritually dead, the Lord was more than capable of bringing his chosen people back to life once again. Uh, We should remember this in our own day. Sometimes when you look around at denominations that have committed covenant suicide by abandoning the word of God, by abandoning the need they have to seek God for his grace and to put their trust in his promises, we should remember that that's a horrible tragedy. But God is able to raise them, as it were, from the dead once again. We worship a God who raises the dead. And third, these miracles reach their climatic point in the widow's bold declaration, now I know that you are a man of God, and the word of the Lord in your mouth is truth. And since the word of the Lord is truth, we ought to trust it and obey it. Yeah, that's it. Trust and obey. For there is no other way to be happy in Jesus but to trust and obey. Amen.